Hi, Vanessa. Hey, Adam. Welcome to Uncertain Things. Today we have uh, Robbie Suave, right? Did oh, I pronounce is that it right? how we pronounce it? That is how you pronounce it. Yes, Ooh. I got it right. Um, who's the senior editor at Reason Magazine. Hi, guys. It's been something that I've been thinking about for a while that I'd love to do our pre-election coverage through the libertarian lens. Just because there is something both about reason specifically, but I think libertarians in general, that kind of show intolerance to the, to the BS on both sides and has a more cleansing effect to, to judge politics through. <laughs> so I thought it would be great to talk to you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> I agree. We do uh, sometimes, to some degree, I think libertarians find ourselves in a uh, moderator role or a, or a you know, we, we abhor both sides so much. And increasingly over time, it's not like either side moves closer to our position. Um, so, uh, so I think I'm, I'm able and many of my compatriots are able to... Um, to uh, fair, to somewhat fairly, you know our and you know what our biases is because we we telegraph them and we're very loud about what we think, which is actually going yeah, straight to my to first, first question. question. Yeah, yeah, you've <laughs> just literally telegraphed who you guys on Reason Magazine are voting for, right? That's right. We released a voluntary um, uh, list. Uh, anyone on staff can participate if they want to. They don't have to. Uh, where every person explains um, who they're voting for and why. We've done this in many election cycles. Uh, we've done this in last, I don't know how many, probably four or five election cycles at least. Uh, our, our thinking is that, you know, journalists do have biases and it might be better if they just admit that. Uh, particularly, uh, so we're opinion journalists anyway, and that's, that's you know, pretty out there. Um, you're supposed to know that we're coming from a perspective and our perspective informs our, write, our writing. And you should take that into consideration uh, when, you, when you read us. So we had, uh, we had a lot of people participate. Um, uns- it's, it was not surprising results. <laughs> uh, most, most people who are voting, uh, who work for Reason, are voting for the libertarian candidate, Joe Jorgensen. Uh, there's also a healthy number of non-voters uh, for both principled reasons and for I don't know where I'm registered to vote reasons. Um, and then as of some interest, there were a couple votes uh, for Biden and uh, one or two votes for Trump. Mm, interesting mix there. Do you think this logic applies or should apply to places like the New York Times, Washington Post? Do you think that, that, that they're missing something by not having this policy? I think uh, opinion magazines for certain are well served by uh, participating in this. I saw the American Conservative uh, did a similar thing, uh, mostly uh, votes for Trump. And not, not everyone actually said who they were voting for. With, uh, with straight news outlets, it's, it's tricky. But I think uh, I, I'm trying to understand what the downside would be if they just did it. Because most people do assume correctly that they do have biases. One of the things that social media has kind of, uh, I think, brought to the forefront is that the people doing, you know, straight, quote unquote, straight news do have strong views. And, and that's not nefarious. Everyone has strong views. It's very hard to be totally dispassionate. I mean, it's, it's borderline. Um, you almost lack knowledge if you're so dispassionate that you have no priors whatsoever. Uh, but social media has allowed, allowed a lot of straight news reporters to sometimes let their biases float out there a little more freely because what they're saying there isn't carefully edited uh, by, by, by someone else, by an editor. Um, so, so often I see more uh, kind of rushing to one side of a story or another on a reporter's Twitter feed so, any in answer to your question, I think I, I think it's an intriguing idea, and and I, I 
that might have more upside than people uh, think. So from your perspective, there wasn't much of a, it wasn't like a moral conundrum for you to do this. Like, I don't know what, which journalism schools you went to or what shaped your thinking, but it wasn't like you felt some sort of internal tension there. No, no. I, I want to, I, I want to give my readers, people who follow my work, more information about what I'm thinking. Uh, I, I don't see how it could serve them poorly, uh, how it could serve them well to, to it's, at least in my case. In other cases, it could certainly be debatable. In my case, I don't see how it serves my readers well to keep that information from them. But you write about the media a lot and what, or at least what you see as follies in, in media coverage and, and the behavior of, of maybe like blue check mark reporters. Yeah. Um, so before we get into what you, you diagnose some of those follies, do you think that this is something that could actually help in terms of improving public perceptions about the media? Like you, exactly like you said, if everybody is expecting that they're already biased, being honest about it will make it, could make it better. Won't it just make it worse? Make, won't it make the siloing even more severe? And just like now we're just honest that, you know, kind of like British journalism that we, you know where everybody is and it's just... Uh, two fu- opposing forces fighting each other, not really any attempt at uh, a consensus or a, a mediative objective uh, reportage. Yeah, I don't know. You could be right. Uh, it already, though, sort of feels like everyone is in one camp or another, especially during the Trump years, because Trump himself sort of uh, positioned himself as the anti-media tribe. And many in the media have gone along with that. In some places, it was, it was difficult not to do that. Um, Trump made the refs the other team. So there has been such a, a, a which is difficult for me. It's difficult for people who have um, not necessarily moderate views, but, but views that don't fit neatly into one category or another, or, or views that some views that overlap strongly with one category and some views that overlap strongly with the other category. Everything about the Trump years wants you to commit to a side, commit to a team, team uh, with the media being very much part of the, 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 un, the non-Trump team. So I, I, I think, uh, and I, I don't think this for certain, uh, but some, it could actually, I, I think some people have a, have a, it's like there's a secret being kept from them, that the, the, the media are still pretending that they're these neutral gatekeepers. So if they just admitted it, it's possible some people would be less inflamed about their coverage of certain things. I, and actually, for a, you know, for a real test of this, often it's, even in Trump world, it's CNN getting attacked rather than MSNBC, even though MSNBC is, is obviously more progressive in its outlook, more, much more consistently uh, 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 liberal in its outlook. But the, and this, it annoys a, a kind of large swath of the country of, of Trump people because CNN is supposed to be unbiased, but they're not. They don't expect the same from MSNBC. To belabor the point just for just one more second, I'm just wondering, is the problem there, though, that they're not honest about their bias or that they are failing to even try to live up to their pretense as objective journalism? There's a lot of different issues here, right? Because even the issue of even saying there that the media is biased is, you know, is this broad statement that that doesn't get into the weeds of how this bias actually functions. Right. Because you have, I mean, one of the most sort of important under under scrutinized or under considered elements of a media bias is just in in deciding 
what to write about in the first place or what's important enough to write about. But you can be, you know, you can be objective without being unbiased. None of, so none of us are really unbiased. But journalists still have to be objective when they consider. So if something, if a piece of information, new information development really, really, really confirms what you already think, then you need to be like even more uh, scrutinizing, even more investigative to make sure you're just not like telling yourself what you want to hear. And many of the recent media controversies and media controversies for the last few years uh, have 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 taken place in a context of journalists just confirming, um, you know, what they already think about Trump people or, or et cetera, et cetera, in a very lazy way and that blowing up in their faces. Right. Which is kind of part of the way that y- you've kind of started to gain recognition, I suppose. And this, this is kind of like your niche is pointing these instances out when they when they happen. I mean, would you mind talking a little bit about maybe one that sticks out in your mind that you think is a, a particularly good example of the times where the media has just not done its due diligence? Sure. I, I think I, I, fair to state, I became best known for covering the Covington uh, Catholic school incident, the boys on the Lincoln Memorial um, who were accused of racially harassing this Native American man and his entourage uh, who had approached them. And it, you know, it was initially, there was this viral clip of the man seemingly being bullied by these kids. One in particular, Nick Sandman, again, these are Catholic high school students. Um, it is a short video clip where it looks like he's really standing in the, in the Native American man's way and he's giving the, him this really uncomfortable, really bullying stare. And, you know, it went viral and it, you know, uh, news stories are appearing about it everywhere. It's CNN.com, The Washington Post, um, other outlets. And then, so I was one of the first people, when I, when I sat, at the time I sat down to write about the story, a longer video had just appeared on the internet. So I watched that one first, and that one showed that there was a great deal of additional context to this, that actually the boys had been screamed at by this kind of crazy group, the Black Hebrew Israelites, it's like a black nationalist cult. I've had unpleasant run-ins with them on the streets of DC before. They just yell crazy things at people. And that had been going on for an hour, and the boys hadn't really done anything objectionable in, in response to them. Then the Native American man and his group appear on the scene, and they it's like they took the side of the Black Hebrew Israelites, and they really wandered into their midst. And Sandman, the starer, is not actually in his way, and it's, it's just totally different context. Um, uh, not an example of like these kids descending on like this innocent group of people and harassing them. So I, I wrote that, and then uh, and then really, it, you know, additional information did co- did come out pretty swiftly that it was it was portrayed wrongly, um, and it became it became this whole media debacle. I think almost everyone's here <laughs> heard of it uh, by now, leading even to uh, to lawsuits against uh, CNN, Washington Post, and others. Um, I think both of those have been settled for undisclosed sums. Yeah, that was an interesting moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, enough media navel gazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before we get into your book, uh, I still want to ask you about the election. So you mentioned in your in the little blurb you wrote describing why you're voting for Joe. Is it Jorgensen or Jorgensen? Uh, Jorgensen, I believe. Jorgensen. Yeah. You mentioned there that you would have voted for Biden had he picked Tulsi Gabbard as his VP. I'm just thinking what you were thinking there was. And also what your, how do you see the stakes for the upcoming elections? 
Sure. I, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a libertarian pretty down the line. I want the Libertarian Party to do well. I have no illusions that she's going to be elected. It's important for me, for the Libertarian Party, to have a, a higher raw total number of votes um, so that they just have more, you know, more access to election resources in the future. I'm also voting in D.C., so my vote absolutely does not matter. Um, I, you know, I don't think, to me, I, there's a lot I really don't like about both Biden and Trump. Um, I, I, I think Trump is appalling. So if you, you know, if you made me choose, I, I, he should not be the president again. So that would, that would leave Biden, but I'm not, again, I'm not voting for either of them because I find Biden inadequate in so many ways as well. Uh, I want to be pandered to a little bit. I, if some, you know, if you want my vote and you're not the libertarian party, you need to say that I, I value you and I want to bring you into my coalition. So I, you know, I thought to myself, how could Biden realistically do that? Um, so if he had chosen a VP who was a little bit more independent minded, obviously he's not going to choose like an out and out libertarian, but a Democrat with some appeal to non-Democrats who has discussed some of the things that are important to libertarians. And I thought, uh, you know, Tulsi Gabbard was, again, this was never going to happen, but was at least another person who had run for president, was a woman, checked some of the diversity boxes he said were important to choosing. So that was kind of my, you know, if you did that, you would communicate at, to me that you, you really are interested in independent voters. Uh, Tulsi was someone who talked about some libertarian issues, certainly not a libertarian, certainly many things I disagree with her on. But uh, that was my thinking there. Now, at no point did I think that was a good uh, electoral strategy for Joe Biden. Mm. I'm, I'm not saying courting my vote is a, is a winning strategy, but uh, if he had done that, I would have likely voted for him, yes. I'm interested because I, I don't need any convincing, but I do wonder what makes him appalling to you. I think that his his bullying uh, behavior, his lack of presidential fit. I mean, it, everything you'll hear from people who who don't like Trump are things I don't like about Trump. Um, I, I I I mean, he doesn't. He also doesn't care about so many of the things he claims to care about. I mean, the government, the size of government continues to get worse. The debt continues to get worse. Um, the, if I were to make, he's terrible on trade and immigration, uh, so both issues where he is worse than a normal Republican would be. Um, I, 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 think, I think on most issues, he is worse than a normal Republican would be. If I, were to, if I were to make an affirmative case for Trump, it would rest for me solely on foreign policy, uh, that he has not started um, a new war, <laughs> even by the standpoint of recent presidents, has been a little bit uh, less militaristic, albeit in a very clumsy way. And he says inflammatory things all the time. Right. And, and I'm not discounting that entirely because it is very important because the president has nearly unchecked power <laughs> on this front. So yeah, uh, I, would, I would argue that it's almost by accident that he didn't start a war. But that's that's me. That very well could be. And he hasn't, you know, he, he said he would get the troops out. But Afghanistan, I think we've just recently brought them back down to some lower level that was had already been obtained a while ago. So it, 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 even it, if, if he's meeting some of his, his claims on this front, he would have done a, a lot better. Um, it, if he was perhaps not so bad on so many other issues, this would be enough, I, I guess, to say this is better than the alternative, but uh, just the, I, I, this, this is hard to, gauge because it's not policy oriented, but at the level Trump practices it, it does matter. The sheer amount of division he relentlessly uh, uh, pumps into our dialogue is just, it's not entirely his fault. He has a lot of willing participation from the other side as well, but he has not, and, even, and in the pandemic, he has just, I mean, he has failed so miraculously 
to, to even as he, I think he does many of the things that his advisors talk about, but then he back talks them and undermines them in other ways. It's just, it's as chaotic and confused as you would expect from someone whose immediate background prior to this is reality television. (laughs) So you're saying he's not the 4D chess player? No, absolutely not. I mean, he's perhaps a 4D chess player when it comes to his own image and catering uh, a a fanatical worship among his his ever-shrinking base of support. Not shrinking too dramatically. He still has, I don't know, 35, 38% of the country that absolutely worships him. Um, He's done a good job for cultivating his own brand. But no, in terms of broader political strategy, I don't believe it's there. I I will just say that. I, I, I keep saying that. And I think that he's even better <laughs> than people give him credit in, in cultivating his image. Because in my mind, he has been so successful that he has made people numb to A, the infractions and shattering of norms, and B, his failures as an actual leader that he is, in my opinion, converting some, some, some voters, people who are usually people who are tired of some of the excesses on the left and have just grown so numb to the, to the worst aspects of Trump that they start seeing him as a viable option. In fact, Vanessa and I just had a conversation yeah. with a friend, um, which surprised me. In the last we, episode. Yeah, in the, in the last episode, it was just supposed to be kind of like just a cross-section for fun, talking to a friend about how, how crazy things are. Um, and he ended up confess. He's a progressive and a liberal who confessed to vote to have voted for Trump. And I, I've been thinking about this for a while. That I really do think that there is. I don't know if it's going to be you know electorally meaningful, but a new kind of silent Trump voter who is the 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 so tired uh, who is an elitist who is uh, an urbanite who is not the you know the, the the trump supporters that that after 2016 you got on panels like the the coal miner or the war on christmas pennsylvania representative it's it's people who agree on 99 percent of the democratic platform but have grown so alienated from what they see right now on the left that they're oh, happy absolutely. to support trump as you know a champion just to punch back against their own house, their own tribe. I, I mean, the, the excesses of the left, particularly on identity and cultural issues, have, have, been a ma- have been a massive gift to the right in general. And I think if Trump was a little bit more savvy about this, he could have exploited it massively to his advantage. The problem is honestly Biden a little bit is a hard person to pin as the avatar of cancel culture because it's he's just is a kind of moderate Democrat from an older iteration of the party. Um, so, so, so Trump world has to claim that, well, Biden's going to be swept aside by this lefty tide, even though the kind of really hard left candidates did pretty bad in this Democratic primary. I think it's just, it's, I think under a different matchup, you would, this would be more of a thing. I mean, prior to the pandemic, I expected Trump to be reelected. I, now I, I think things are so bad and things being so bad are a reflection on the incumbent, even if it's, whether it's his fault or not, I expect him to lose. Really? But, yeah. I mean, I, I just, <laughs> I, I feel like I, I keep bringing this point up with every person what we're talking to. I just feel like the way that information gets transmitted today makes it so easy to completely separate reality from whatever it is that the politician represents within your internal narrative. So in reality, maybe people are dying by the hundreds of thousands from a pandemic and the economy is terrible. And a lot of that is due to 
the mismanagement of federal government. And in theory, that would reflect poorly on the incumbent, right? But thanks to social media, it's very easy to just box out all this discussion and make drop people's attention to focus only on cancel culture. Cancel culture is a problem. Or uh, Biden is going to be a, a sock puppet for the Sanderistas. I think the ability of people to create their own reality-shaping media silos is so big that the time of things like a pandemic or a bad economy truly shaping people's perspectives is is over. We have too much control of the narratives that we're right. seeing and the way that it is shaping our politics. The amount of, po- I mean, just the sheer amount of political polarization makes it so that any change anything happening just has less of an effect because we're already so sorted there's a there's a smaller number than ever before of unsorted people or people who might switch from one to the other so so, so you know trump's trump's ceiling is lower but the, but the the bottom floor to you, this tortured analogy is higher than, you know what I mean? There's, there's less, like no matter what he could, and he's, he said this, right? The famous, I could shoot someone on whatever street it was in New York and I wouldn't lose any votes, uh, has a ring of truth to it. And it's true for the other side. So, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty, we're pretty split into these two camps. I mean, you could go back decades, right? And you would have people who would say they're Republicans, but they're voting for Democrats and vice versa. You'd have Democratic governors of Republican states. You have it much to a lesser degree. And also the existing, the Republicans in Congress, you know, the, 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 the 10% most liberal of them would be more liberal than the most conservative Democrats. We've sorted all that out now. Not all of it, but most of it. <laughs> now everyone is where they should be. Mm. Everyone belongs to a tribe that fits what they think, or they've fitted what they think to the tribe they're part of. Either way, they're in the right place. I mean, systems get more efficient over time, like game systems where it's a contest to beat the other. Everybody eventually figures out how to play the game more efficiently, and that's largely what we've done. So you're right that there, it, it, there's not nearly as much movement as there would before. All that said, you know, not everyone is so online as we are. There are still some kind of, I mean, I, I know people who are Trump voters who are not voting Trump, who were Trump voters and are voting Biden this time. I also know people the other way around, you know, we're talking about the exodus of kind of the, uh, of higher, um, uh, uh, more educated voters from the Republican party, white women from the Republican party, but also the Republican party's doing better with some minorities in some states now. So there are, there are changes taking place. They're just not as pronounced or dramatic as you would have seen a decade ago. I also wonder if people on, uh, cause we're so familiar with our left bubble and so familiar right. with the the things that piss us off about the left and, and like you said it's we're sorted out and so that's what we know i do wonder what's happening on the on the other side on the right side are they also fed up with what's going on on their side and could it have like could there be a similar movement away from their traditional uh politicians that they would go for because they're just sick of this online rhetoric i know that granted with your your point that not everyone is as online and plugged in as as we are but i do wonder if there could be a corollary on the other side well i mean if if trump loses right there's going to be there's going to be some kind of intellectual shakeup in the foundations of conservatism and what republican voters think there's going to be uh, because many i i think republican uh leaders politicians think tank donor people we're never really on board uh, or we're skeptical of some of the more pump populist Trump stuff. Uh, you know, they want deregulation and tax cuts. 
And there's probably going to be an attempt to, to go back. I, I, and certainly some people are going to want to go back to a more traditional Republican agenda. Then mm-hmm. other people will be, you know, competing for the Trump populist mantle. Some of them might even have the last name Trump <laughs> as they, as they, and we'll see where it, we'll see where it, there's, it's impossible to kind of tell how it's going to shake out. It's certainly going to be very interesting. So that's the kind of fight going on on the right, um, which is only, it's, it's, it's among different issue coalitions where I think the fight going on in the liberal side really is a fight between an ardent leftist, you know, borderline democratic socialist and, and heavily identitarian or, you know, very, you know, pronouns and all those kinds of things uh, versus a, and that faction being much, much louder, but Mm. smaller. And then the bigger faction of just kind of, older, moderate religious Democrats who, who, who chose Biden. Well, not that I think the Republican Party uh, needs my, my help, nor do I actually want them to take this advice. But from where I'm standing, it seems like it would be absolutely insane for the Republican Party to not put a more disciplined Trump in charge. Now, I think that will be a terrible thing for the country and the world, but I think Trump has shown that this is this is effective, and this is a, like the the strategy of of slightly socialized nationalism is something, and, and populism is able to completely steal votes from from di, I, I, like disillusioned Democrats or or a, like just the alienated, forgotten voters of of, of Middle America, and. The problem with Trump is that he's completely lacking in discipline. They just need to get a better Viktor Orban, and they, they, you know, that that that, that might be the end of America. But still, it, it's a good job for the Republican Party. If Trump is reelected under these conditions, then obviously, yes, Trump is the greatest. Uh, most successful political Republican uh, figure ever. He was smarter than everyone else and you should copy him exactly because Mm. these are really tough. This is a really tough situation he's up against. He's up against the most moderate and appealing rival he possibly could have had, someone who is just not disliked the way the last person he ran against was and he's in a terrible spot, not for reasons that are not entirely beyond his control but are are. To, to, certainly to some degree beyond his control. So if he still pulls it out, it will be, it'll be a really amazing triumph for Donald Trump himself, to be honest. Obviously, we're getting pulled into politics. It's hard not to. It's 2020 yeah. and it's a week before the election. But I do want us to talk about the, your book and the reporting that you did for your for book. So would you mind giving us a little bit of a, like, what are the... Who are yes, the, you're, I, and I, did we introduce it? P- Panic uh, Attack, Young Radicals in the Age of Trump. Excellent yeah. book. Thank you. I'm really excited to know what what are what are these young radicals thinking? <laughs> sure. So I, uh, you know, I noticed some of the um, the themes, the incidents uh, that probably you pay attention to as well, uh, beginning on college campuses, right? In the, in this in this last ten years, the increasing illiberal tide in liberal activism on college campuses, mounting attempts to shout down speakers uh, who are conservative or just or just you know depart from liberal thinking in maybe just one or two areas. Uh, for professors now afraid of professors who are very liberal telling me that they are terrified of their students, that their students are going to report them for having said something wrong about race or sex or something, something that you know, would have been perfectly fine in keeping with what progressives thought about these subjects in the 1970s, but has now fallen out of favor, or maybe just the language is wrong. Um, you know, students uh, 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 shouting down uh, uh, speakers, other student groups, in- occasionally wielding violence 
uh, to do so. And many of these incidents, you know, have become uh, known to a lot of people. What happened at Middlebury, Yale, uh, the Claremont Colleges, uh, uh, Mizzou, uh, Evergreen, you go on and on with these things. So I visited uh, some of these campuses. I, I talked to students at a lot more of them uh, to try the student activists to try to understand where these ideas are coming from and why they like these tactics. And my my thesis of the book really is that is it about a new understanding of what safety entails, a broadening of the concept of safety to include safety from emotional harm. So, so many of these activists told me that they thought they were justified in preventing whoever it is, Ben Shapiro or, or Heather McDonald or Christina Hoff Summers, um, or, even their, or even their very liberal professor who said something that wounded them in some way. They're justified because if they feel hurt, if their feelings are hurt or if a marginalized friend of theirs is hurt by this, it's like violence was wielded against them and they have the right to prevent it. Just the same as you would have the right to prevent, you know, someone punching you in the face, you have the right to defend yourself. And that is the, uh, the root idea that has taken hold. And then I would just add that I think what we've seen in the last few months or last years and even the last few months is an acceleration of this uh, or a, a, a spreading of this kind of activism from the campus to online, to the workplace, um, to a lot of uh, maybe pandemic era frustrations uh, in the workplace spilling out onto social media. I think what happened at the New York Times with Barry Weiss is partly a reflection of this. Again, not to make everything media focused, uh, but but certainly the, the the kind of woke young person who really thinks you've harmed them, you've compromised their safety if you say something they disagree with. That that's not all young people at all. That's a small number of young people, but they're becoming uh, more influential and they move from the campus perhaps to an office near you. I, I, can I just ask a, a bit of a clarifying question on this, just to try and understand their perspective here? When they say that you know emotional harm is uh, is their the way that they're judging what how people are allowed to act, do they have a place where they draw the line? Like, is there anywhere where it would be like, well, it wasn't so hurtful, or or maybe if somebody re- reacts disproportionately hurt to something that they maybe they they don't deem as that so bad like is there are there any kind of places where they can distinguish a good or bad act action versus versus good or bad reaction that, that's a fantastic question in, in my experience i've i've been, i have been troubled by the lack of a limiting principle and in fact even some of the rules that prop up some of this on campus so for Title IX is the federal statute that uh, prohibits gender-based discrimination and harassment in education. That was that has been marshaled by the activists uh, to ch- to chill so much speech that that any speech that offends you that remotely impugns on sex or gender could be a violation of Title IX. That's something activists claim. Uh, it's it's helped that I mean under the Obama administration, the Office for Civil Rights of the Education Department put out guidance that explicitly did not have these limiting principles in place, even where you would expect them to appear in harassment law. Usually in the workplace, you know, it, it, it has to be severe, uh, pervasive, uh, offensive to an objection uh, to to a reasonable, objective person. There's all these these things that courts have recognized. So there's just not all speech, not all negative interactions impugn some liability. The federal guidance was basically that any unwanted conduct of a sexual nature uh, would be something that a university would have to vi- would have to investigate as a potential Title IX violation. I mean, that allows you to complain that your prof- that your English professor talked about Shakespeare in a way you didn't like. Um, mm-hmm. Law professors have basically given up 
uh, at many elite institutions, they've given up even trying to teach how the law relates to sexual assault because you could have someone in the class that is made uncomfortable by that discussion and they've said it's better not to even try, which is, I think, an appalling outcome if the next gener generation of, of lawyers... I mean, think of the... Think of the setback. I mean, the, the sort of the feminist legal movement, right, benefited from educating judges, prosecutors, potential juries about these aspects of the law that now we're, we're shrinking from because, again, one, one student in a class of 20 might file a complaint. Uh, to what extent does it really apply in the realm of quote unquote more harder sciences or engineering and things that it, like train you for real world vocations as opposed to the humanities? And that's not to dismiss the impact on the intellectual culture that we're in, but I'm just trying to see if there is a line there. Is it, is it more, I'm assuming that it's more predominant in the humanities or social sciences than it is in, in law, maybe psychology, etc. Yeah, it, it, you're correct. Of course, it's wildly more prevalent in the humanities, uh, the social sciences to some degree. I think, though, that there has been kind of an effort to, I, I think, so I think the hard sciences have been to some degree resistant to an effort to broaden their scope to include more of these kind of concerns about diversity and 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 the thing I mean, diversity obviously being a good thing but has been used as as a cudgel to inject some of these more activist ways of thinking into the disciplines um i, I think you see you know you, you these disciplines are, are uh, they have people in them probably more who are more disproportionate already disproportionately more likely to really uh, be trying to get a maybe a, a, a craft or, a, or or something out of it that they know translates to a to a to a to a to a good job. I mean that 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 certainly exists in the humanities as well. I'm a I'm a humanities major, but uh, there there are certainly more humanities graduates who took on tons of debt who now are like not employable and probably think, you know, what was, what was the, where did I go wrong? Uh, it probably maybe even lends itself to a kind of lefty way of thinking, maybe even on economic issues that there was injustice here. And, and to some degree there is injustice, right? People who were convinced by their, by their evil academic advisors that it was worth going like a hundred thousand dollars in, in mm -hmm. debt to get the most fanciest English degree from the most fancy college, um, were liars and swindlers. So I, I have a great deal of sympathy for them on that front. Um, the, the other thing I'll say on this though, there's an effort to, um, I, I think push these values into the K through 12 system as well. I mean, I saw the other day, I think it's, I think it was Fairfax County again, which is the, which is the school district of Northern Virginia, the kind of suburbs that border DC and, you know, they're not, so they're not open for instruction because the teachers unions have, have refused to go back. Even the, you know, all private schools are open now, but if you're a, a kid who relies on public education, you're in the terrible Zoom learning. Um, they, they are, they spent money. They spent like a lot of money to have a one hour instructional session for the principals and administrative fact, uh, uh, administrative people with Ibram X. Kendi, uh, who is uh, one of the the noted anti-racist scholars of the summer, um, whose idea, which I, I think is very pernicious, his big idea is to amend the Constitution to create a department of anti-racism that would explicitly be charged with um, sanctioning people for making racist statements. I mean, a, a, like a very fundamentally illiberal, uh, uh, contrary to kind of a First Amendment classical liberal approach. Uh, and and that is that is being... That is being preached at to the administration of, of a K through 12 schools. 
And I, I, it's so hard not to politicize education, but this seems, this seems to be, to be moving in a bad direction of like, of, of, of sort of instilling these kinds of values that I, that I'm worried about, even, uh, even not, not having them discussed the way they might be discussed in a college classroom, but just kind of required of the students, even from a very early age. Okay, there's so much there uh, that I want to take <laughs> apart. So let's start with: Do you agree that the problem that we should be that we should be focusing on is less the students themselves, but more the underlying institutional issue? The problem isn't that kids are energized about ideas like social justice or anti-racism. The problem is that the institutions that they go to are limiting their worldview and giving them a very narrow perspective as to what those concepts mean. And beyond that, those institutions that are supposed to educate the kids are actually making them less receptive to any idea that is in tension with this narrow worldview. Do you agree that this is the core problem? Uh, sort of. I mean, the problem is that uh, these are being taught not as sort of ideas that one can, I mean, they're, so they're not even really being taught in, in the sense of like, here's a, a college classroom where like, here's what conservatism is. Here's what liberalism is. Let's talk about that. It's more they're, they're a, they're, they are the rules. And if you don't follow them, uh, you could be subject to some kind of penalty. It, it, it's, it's being, it's not, because it's not the faculty who has adopted this by and large, there's some faculty members obviously who believe in this, but it's the administrators kind of enforcing it, even sometimes student residential people, again, if we're talking about the college environment, it's more like you must sign on to the idea that diversity is good. And also that if you're not providing divert, that if you're not, you know, manifesting diversity, you might be guilty of a legal violation because the law requires a safe, equitable educational environment or work environment or harassment free environment. My philosophy also says that that emotional comfort is just the same as physical comfort. There's all these. Uh, it's what I think it's what is like required under the existing law is the view of this the administrators are saying you have to sign on to this. So, so it's a, it's a meeting of the fact that there are some small number of young people who, who believe this and want to enforce it. And then there's an, an apparatus for it to be enforced. And even though probably most people are, or a significant number of people are like, would, would not sign on to it willingly otherwise. Right. But, but if they were, if we were to assign blame, kids having simple worldviews is nothing new. It's rather the fault of the administrators and faculty for not challenging it. Yes, I agree with that. Yes, I agree. So yep. one of the earliest uh, encounters that I had with this issue was, I think, in 2013. I was talking to, to a professor in, in an Ivy League school who was speaking for his friend. And I'm not going to give details because I actually don't have uh, permission to report on it. But the, the friend was an English professor. And he was teaching one of those foundational texts in European history. And that text, one of those pieces, that was, I think it's considered one of the earliest narrative novels. And it, it includes a story of a rape and, and, and a power relations between a, a servant and a master. The piece itself is actually revolutionary when you think about it, like written, I think, 300 years ago as, as depicting the exploitative and corrosive nature of power relations of class of wealth disparities and you know this is radical content for 300 years ago but then one student complained to the administrators that hey there's rape there and this professor is teaching us about rape and you can imagine how the story unfolds 
they they go before the administrators. The teacher has to stand before a panel, and this is 2013, so it's in the early stage of the of what you call the panic. There were there were no stories in Vox about it, or no counter stories in Fox. It was just it just just happened in real time. And he goes before the panel, and the panel says, "You know, professor, you're in the right, but you need to stop teaching this text. This text that is." one of the cornerstones of European literature. The, the insane thing here is not the kid saying it, is an administrator saying there was a kid with a stupid opinion who misunderstood the text, who, mis- who, who exactly needs an English professor to tell them, you're wrong, here's why you're wrong, here's why this text is so important, here's why if you're going to study literature, you need to understand this text, here's how you need to read this text, and here's how, through this text, you can observe the evolution of human perception. Instead, you're getting administrators saying, no, 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 stop, stop that, stop teaching this text, and instead, you need to pander to your students as if you're a politician or an entertainer. And this is where the problem is. This is where the adults should have said enough and didn't, and instead validated every single puerile complaint that came their way. Well, and, and yeah, and there's a lot of validators. There, there's the, the increasing, there's so many more administrators uh, in schools on college campuses that, than ever before. It increases every year. You know, the ranks of the faculty, faculty salaries um, have not increased you know, whatsoever, probably the entire time I've been alive. Meanwhile, university after university, they'll double the number of uh, administrators they have, the ratio of administrators to other people. There's more cops. (laughs) When there's more cops, there's more enforcement. There's someone you can go to to have your grievance legitimated, especially because these people, you know, these are people in charge of the, the, the residence halls that have, you know, they have titles like vice president of sustainable, happy student engagement in life. Like what is their job? And, they, and these people draw massive salaries, just scandalously high salaries. Absolutely have that established. These are north of 100K. Um, I, the University of Michigan, where I graduated from, they have, I think they have, I don't remember the exact statistic, they had dozens of people uh, in these kinds of positions making this kind of money. And they're, what, are, what is this person's job but to make a student feel happy and safe and comfortable mm. uh, uh, to, to make their lives more dif- uh, less difficult, more difficult for the, for the professors. So the professors, you know, just coming in. And so even if most of these people are reasonable, there's always some of these people who are, or just who, and who prioritize compliance with bizarre rules rather than a culture of free inquiry and free speech, even if it's difficult, because free speech is difficult. It, it's, difficult to have uncomfortable conversations. It's difficult to foster the, the, the kind of conditions where people feel free to express heretical ideas uh, without shaming and you have productive uh, dialogues about it. It's, it's much easier to, to even accidentally, even if you're not trying to do it on purpose, have a snitch culture and a compliance right. culture, a culture where you, you go straight to the, you know, the panel for adjudicating student grievances to have your perspective heard, your, you know, your, to, 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 to file some kind of complaint. The way this plays out for me is we are talking about a completely different set of incentives. So if we look at a world, what we imagine the academic world is supposed to be, the fantasy academic world, which is promoting free inquiry, debate, free speech. And on the other hand, you have the administrative incentive, which is we are creating a valuable membership card for for the Mm. American elite, which costs $200,000. And that's it. 
We just need to make sure that people still want to buy this membership card and to keep on advertising it. What we certainly don't care about is what values happen to get slipped into the process of gaining this membership card, just so long as people from the US or abroad still come here and pay $200,000 to get it. So how do you actually reconcile this? If at, at, at the core of it, there is no incentive for administrators to actually uphold what we, you and I, and presumably Vanessa see as um, the core values of, of, of academic learning. Yeah, I, I mean, right, the, the, there are so many problems with exactly what you're describing. Uh, it's hard to know what exactly to do about it. I have been such a skeptic of the value of higher education, given the cost to the individual students. Uh, the, obviously, the cost being just wildly distorted by a number of things. I think the, uh, the government subsidizing student loans uh, is, a, is a suspect policy. Obviously, it, it, it has a good intention to make it easier for students to pay this kind of cost. But, uh, but if you're distorting the price, that we, we've seen, and there have been numerous studies who have shown this, so there's some evidence for this claim. It's not like just some like crazy right-wing claim that the subsidizing the loans gives the universities every incentive, every reason to just raise the price because the government is going to help you pay it. And you don't even know what you're paying. It's years later, you're going to figure it out. You just, it just kind of seems free to you right now. And this just has this massive distorting effect. I mean, I, I think public universities, universities that are, 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 are truly supported by the taxpayers of their state, uh, that would be an issue where, like, even as a libertarian, I wouldn't have a problem uh, for the state legislatures putting some rules on, on, on how much they can raise the actual price. I, I, I'm from Michigan. It seems to me a little crazy that the universities in Michigan, that Michigan State, University of Michigan, are, like, unaffordable to people who live there, uh, whose tax money does go to support it. That seems kind of wrong to me. Um, I think uh, I, what what could be the case is that this the pandemic, which really I mean is you know wreaking havoc on every facet of life and is a you know once in a century tragedy, uh, might have people correctly rethinking the value versus the cost of higher education. I think I mean I think every university is choosing a slightly different path. I think some are lowering the cost. I mean it's it's. Totally unreasonable and insane <laughs> to charge the same thing for this terrible, awful experience. Of, I mean, what a lot of the wealthy are paying for when they go to college is we know it. It's the experience. It's the fun. It's the party. That's sad, but it's true. That's the, that's the message from the college admission scandal, right? None of these kids had any concern that they would fail out because they're actually not smart enough to be there. Of course they can get by and they were willing to pay an astro astronomical amount of extra money to get into the one they wanted because it'd be more fun there and it's slightly more prestigious, um, an absolute scandal. So I, th there, there, is a, there is an opportunity to, to rethink higher education a little bit right now, but it, obviously it's very... I just think that the, the, the place where it gets rethought is maybe in mid-level schools, but probably in the higher schools, like in the Ivy League and definitely places like Harvard and Yale, they, they're fine. They're still charging their $65,000 a semester for, for online courses. Because not only that, what I, I've, again, I spoke to some professors in that, in that field that one of some of the things that administrators are doing is, is actually just opening up the, the, the waiting list a little bit and telling people you're in 
and people who are already going to go to a middle uh, mid-level school somewhere and it's like oh cool i got into harvard i am going to pay those sixty thousand dollars because i think beyond the experience is like i said it's the membership card and for people still buying into the idea that harvard is your ticket for success or for you know climbing up socially that's it's just, just maybe it's worth it in their mind those two hundred thousand dollars right and, and it might be worth it if you have if you have vast financial resources it might be worth it the, the question is is it worth it if you put yourself into debt for years after when you could have gotten the exact same education i mean i the, you know the next 100 colleges i don't believe the difference in the educational quality to harvard is nearly as 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 the gulf is not they are relative to the price. No, but of course, the, no, but that's the what I'm saying. The education, the education right. quality is meaningless. Yeah. That's, that's exactly my point. They don't <laughs> actually care about the professors. And I think that's going back to the problem that we were talking about. I think the professors, the, the, the faculty is actually the least important part of the equation. They're the, uh, the, 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 the customer is the, the parents or the students, depends on how you look at it. The merchant is the administrator, obviously, selling a diploma. And, and the merchants are just facilitators. They're, they're just completely interchangeable. And that's why their salaries have been so stagnant, as, as you pointed out yourself. Anyway, that's just, just all that was just an intro to the question. If, this is, if, if you agree with me that this is part of or core element of the problem that is like fostering this culture of, of um, coddling, why aren't we talking about this more? Because a concern that I get when I'm trying to convince people that, you know, cancel culture is a real problem and that it does have um, a miasmic effect to the rest of society, I find myself having to explain time and time again exactly why students doing crazy things in college matters. And, and the response to this is always, uh, it doesn't, it's, there's just kids being in their little social justice subculture in college. It doesn't, doesn't mean anything. Get over yourselves. They're just being jerks. Uh, so part of my regular response is, first, if, if we don't like these behaviors in college, we're not going to like them when they come out of college. But the bigger point for me is that the problem, again, is not the kids. This is a problem that is endemic to the institutions of higher education. Yeah. Um, to, so to respond to the, and yeah, so I absolutely get it. People accuse me of this all the time. You're just bashing, you know, idiotic college students. Is that really fair? Uh, and also it, it's now because, you know, college student writes a stupid newspaper op-ed. It's around forever. It will spread on social media. It might become a story on Fox News. Um, uh, you know, uh, 20 years ago, they would have written it. No one would have seen it. That would have been the end. So it can seem like a, pr I, I do think the problem's getting worse, but there's so much more coverage of the problem that it makes it look that much even worse than it actually is. I have tried to be more careful uh, when I report on stupid college students doing stupid things. I have tried to become more careful about um, thinking about, okay, should I actually escalate this? Should I actually call this to the attention of my audience? 
is there a way I can do so without subjecting these the individual students to personal stigma or shame? Can I not name them? Can I talk about them in some general way? I, I've tried to do that more. Now, if it's if it's the student body president who came out with a statement about how this professor should be run off campus, then probably I have to I'm going to name them. I'm going to use their statement. But if it's just some now a student commenting on that statement saying yes, run them off campus, I'm probably not going to screenshot it. I'm probably not going to share their name. Uh, I because Part of the problem with cancel culture, right, is not allowing for people to be forgiven. So it would be wrong if those of us who are concerned about cancel culture to then go out and try to, like, you know, destroy the lives of the people who are doing the things we don't like. Um, I, I, all, I, I think what often trips people up, though, is also that the, the most prominent victims of cancel culture tend to look less sympathetic, uh, just in the sense that, so when, you know, Chappelle gets in trouble or something, uh, the comedian Dave Chappelle, then there'll be a news cycle about how people tried to cancel Dave Chappelle. But Dave Chappelle is, and I, I'll probably agree that the trying to cancel him was dumb or something, but also he's a famous comedian, he's going to be fine, uh, he might even, you know, spin this into something beneficial for him because he's controversial. We don't talk about as much, you know, the truck driver who was photographed um, doing this, and someone said it was a white nationalist hand gesture, and he lost his job, and he can't get it back, and now he's in poverty or homeless. To our listeners, Robbie um, just did the OK sign. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm done. But see, I, you, I'll be fine because I, I'm a prominent enough critic of cancel culture. I, I could start my own podcast or something. But, uh, but, uh, but the common people who just get tripped up, who are who totally do, who cannot follow. The, the ever-mutating, ever-changing demands of the most progressive people on what pronouns to use, what hand signals are okay. I mean, they're often, again, often insane and conspiratorial requirements or, 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 or ones reflect, reflecting a conspiratorial mindset. Uh, those people, it happens to them all the time. And you don't, you know, it, it, you only hear about it if they're in touch with a journalist, if they know how to find me, and I'll tell their story. But it, that kind of thing happens a lot. So, so Finding and talking about those kinds of stories, I think, makes people um, maybe more, uh, more, uh, or, or less likely to fall into. Well, you're you're just like bashing students, or you're just like you're just defending the already rich and powerful, or something. But even but even when you when you feel like the story does deserve to be covered, isn't there a concern that we are not focusing on the what the core problems are, whether it's the administrative issues or the the economic incentive problems that we we talked about? And with the case of the with the truck driver losing his job, that's a Twitter problem with 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 platforms like Twitter designed to amplify the worst nature of human tribalism. And in all those cases, the problem isn't the 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 the, the people who are participating in the in the quote unquote canceling because that's just part of human nature to be to be to want to find a witch to hunt. The problem is, is the people who are supposed to be the adults in the room who aren't stepping up to to, to moderate this yeah, behavior. I mean, but but at the same time, uh, I'm saying this, I'm already giving myself chills because who who the hell do I want moderating this? In the case of Twitter, for instance, I don't. I definitely don't want Congress and Republicans or Democrats uh, uh, overruling Section Two Thirty, which they're talking about in a hearing today. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, I was watching it before I came on. Yeah, I mean that. So I'm actually the, I, I'm writing another book right now um, about uh, social media and attempts to regulate it. Uh, mm. So problems people have with social media and then the proposed solutions, and that is an issue. So I, I often I agree with 
so, some of the criticism of social media, I, I firmly reject. I don't, I, some, a lot of the kind of tech addiction stuff that is prevalent in the, like the social dilemma film yeah. <laughs> smacks of moral panic to me. Yes. You know, we were told this about comic books, violent video games, etc. Come on, Robbie, put your phone um, in a cookie jar. <laughs> yeah, no. One thing, one moment you're you're looking at your phone. The next, uh, Pete Campbell from Mad Men is in your head, forcing three, you to do three things. Pete Campbell, three, three versions of him. So, uh, so some of some of the concerns are just really overblown. Um, but there are no, there are problems with social media. Um, but then the question becomes, what's the solution? And so many solutions on the table. Like right now, conservatives are so mad about bias on social media. They think they're unfairly targeted by the tech platforms. You can point to evidence where bad calls were made. I think what Twitter and to some degree Facebook did with this the New York Post Hunter Biden story is really hard to defend. And in fact, they agree pretty much because Jack Dorsey said this was a bad call. Oh, we effed up. Um, at the, right. At the same time, like the proposal on the table to you know get rid of Section 230 this is from, so both sides want to do this essentially for opposite reasons. I, it would not, if, if you got rid of the lot for, for listeners who are not necessarily policy attentive, can you, can you just give a yeah. summary of what the two thirty debate is? Yeah. Section two thirty is a, is a federal law is a statute that, uh, gives immunity, it gives a liability shield to tech platforms for content posted on their site. So it basically says that Facebook is not going to be held liable. If I post a defamatory comment on Facebook, you can, or libelous, you can sue me, you can't sue Facebook. Now, for if I, if I published a defamatory book or article in the New York Times, you can sue the New York Times and you can sue your, the book publisher in addition to me. This is a special protection for Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, platforms that are so vast that they can't do the kind of, uh, of, uh, of like fact checking or they, they, they're not where the law is, is saying, so this is a law, so it could be changed. It could be debated. The point of the law is to say, they're not really responsible in the same way. My book publisher is responsible for me. And it's a protection from 1996 that has basically yes. established the internet as we know it today. Right. Right. Because you couldn't have anything going on. So if, if Facebook could be sued for the thing you post, right. it, 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 you write in a post, I mean, you can imagine how this falls apart very quickly. They would have to, they might have to vet your comment ahead of time, or they might have to vet you and be someone you could be trusted to post at will. Uh, so it's kind of insane that conservatives have come up with the idea, well, we'll get rid of this because mm -hmm. the obvious result would be increased moderation for like the kind of edgy right-wing content that they're already mad isn't prevalent enough on the site. Um, so it's just a, it's more a, just a, a strategy to really like hurt and punish these companies for behaving in a way they, that conservatives don't like that would at all address the, the issue. So Dem on the other side, Democrats, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, no, they, they also want to get rid of Section 230 because they think Facebook and Twitter, mostly Facebook, allow too much bad, mm -hmm. edgy, <laughs> wrong content. So, so they, want to, they want to force them to do, in a nutshell, they want to, to force these companies or punish them for failing to do enough moderation, and the Republicans uh, say there should be less moderation. And supercharging it, at least from the left, is a concern about monopolies and, yeah. and big tech. Yeah, then there, are, then there are some kind of more, almost more traditional or more familiar, just monopoly concerns about how big and how uh, anti-competitive nature. Right now, there's a, a law of a DOJ uh, investigation into Google about uh, that's more on that. So conservatives were all excited about this, but then I read the text of the investigation and it has nothing to do with any of the conservative grievances. Mm -hmm. It is solely about the potential anti-competitiveness uh, anti of Google. Well, it doesn't 
doesn't matter as long as they can sell it as uh, to their voters as yeah. action against right. But it matters to me because I understand the grievance. I I think some of the, the I, I think there is some evidence of of uh, bias at least like I think what Twitter did with the New York Post story was really bad. I would. I'm open to ideas to address that policy, and though I'm a libertarian, I, w- I guess I would even consider like a regulatory uh, reaction. But just just a, a regulatory effort that is just going to punish these companies and not even address that problem. Just it w- so that I will absolutely oppose because I oppose regulation on its own. <laughs> it, it has become a, a maxim for me that if something has bipartisan support, it's probably a bad idea. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Well, and it, just with the kind of monopoly argument for these companies, so right, I'm trying to be reasonable. I see the argument for why Google might be a monopoly, and I think some of their behavior maybe fits into that framework a little bit more. I have a hard time really seeing like Facebook as a hard M monopoly because like what is it going to do with that power to, right? the, the, for antitrust it has to, there has to be some harm to the consumer like they can suddenly jack up the price or something but you're not you're not charging for facebook for the user and it like it's i know they're very big and very powerful and i guess they could buy rival companies but it's just it's hard for me to imagine it's impossible for like a rival like photo sharing thing to be you know what i mean it's just i don't i, I don't i don't see as much I mean, they compete to, with Twitter to some extent. Amazon, I guess, is a monopoly, but no one is. Wor- it's just so great that you get free stuff, <laughs> that you get much cheaper stuff so easily. Um, so some, I don't know, some of these. I see the concern with Google. I got into an argument with a, a socialist-leaning friend about Google specifically, which I, 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 I wonder what you see as the concern because when I was arguing uh, about about the Google's ultimate power, I thought like a. If you want, you can always like opt out and use Bing. Nobody's stopping you or you. There are other e- uh, email services. There are other. And then one of my, the responses of my friends were something along the line of, yeah, but it's so integrated and convenient that I don't want to leave. So you're saying it's free, it's too convenient, and that's a problem. Right. I really don't think that's what antitrust laws were meant to combat. So help me see what I'm missing, which is funny. I'm asking a libertarian. And there's definitely the ad uh, problem, I guess. That and also kind of restricting the ecosystem for littler players. Like how can you let, if you're a young tech startup, how do you, how are you going to get a foot in, in the door when everything is really kind of owned already? And I, I assume that I'm less well-versed in this. I don't know, but, but Zoom, Zoom only recently yeah. became right, right. a juggernaut and... It's it's in the digital world. It's a lot easier for small competitors, just by the nature of the beast. It's not you're not fighting over material in the ground. It's not it's not the same conditions that that prompted the the antitrust laws of the beginning of the twentieth century. Yeah, I str- I strongly agree with that. I mean, the, the product is um, is ephemeral to some degree. It's not and like we have all the oil reserves. So how could anyone ever exactly. have oil, oil oil reserves than us? I mean, like, dude. I mean, I'm old enough to remember MySpace and AOL Instant Messenger and like thing things come and go. Kids are really into TikTok. For a while, it was Snapchat. Right? Like, there's new. There's just it seems to for the tech market there's some kind of intrinsic like something new comes along um mm. to a greater and fa- degree and facebook w- was only founded yeah. 15 yeah. years ago it's not hp that existed from 30 well, and if you look at the top 10 you know the top 10 tech companies every year like you know they're they, they've 
over the last 15 years, they've gone up and down all the time. So it just, and also they're, so they're right. So there's, it seems like you could have a competitor come along. There, there will be shakeups. There, there are things that make them not monopolistic like that. And also they're not really wielding their power in an anti-consumer monopolistic way because we like this stuff basically. So that's why it, right. it seems premature to like, oh, we got to kill them. <laughs> For this reason. The other thing, though, with like the Section 230 changes and everything. So Zuckerberg finally said, he's like, okay, I think he said this today. Um, all right, I, we're, you know, we're open to this being changed, but, you know, keep this in mind. The more regulatory barriers you impose, more liability you, you inflict, um, we can, that, that's just going to like hurt if there was a competitor to, to come along, you would just kill them off in their infancy right. because they right. can't hire a team of lawyers to deal with these things. Right. So that, I mean, this is kind of a classic libertarian uh, criticism of regulation, but I, it, it, I think it holds a lot of merit in many cases, including this one where you would just, yeah, it's, it's a super important point. Can you, can you expand on it a little bit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, they, so if you impose the, you got, you change section 230. So there's more liability costs. They have to do more to, to make sure speech is not libelous. They have to do all this stuff. They have to hire lawyers. Well, Facebook is in a position to do that. Whereas some competitor coming along might not have the resources to do it. So you would, you're hurting Facebook, but you're hurting people who would compete against them theoretically even more. Even more. So then you're actually not hurting Facebook. You're helping them. And it's partially as if you're tailoring the regulations to, to fit the size of the, current company and they're kind of right. grandfathered in into it or, or, right. or basically they just they have the re, the resource they it's more like they have the resources to adapt to it in a way like which is kind of happening with in europe with gdpr like in in that way where the bigger companies are the ones that like have the teams of lawyers that right. can figure out how to adapt and it's the little guys that have just like the, sometimes you'll get those alerts on your screen like hey we've shut down because we have to figure this out and we can't keep going without it you know and it, right. which is not the case with bigger with bigger companies And yeah, and I just know it as a truism of of libertarian thought that that being being declared a uh, uh, utility is 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 kind of the dream of a company. It's not it's not something right. that they're afraid of. And Facebook, you know, hires thousands and thousands and thousands of people to do this job. Many of them coming straight from the government. I can't tell you how many of of. Facebook's top and Twitter and all these companies, their face, you know, the, the top VP making decisions on this front is a former Kamala Harris staffer or Joe Biden staffer or something. So they have so much more access to a knowledge of the regulatory regime. I mean, this is kind of a, this is a classic liberty. I mean, this is a classic libertarian criticism of so many things, but it's been like that a little bit with campaign finance reform, where we're saying, look, I get I get what you're talking about, but the better, the, the wealthier, more connected, savvier political entities know how to game all these rules. They know who enforces them. They know how to do it. So while you're trying to keep money out of politics, what you're really just doing is like punishing people who would want to break into it um, rather than actually, you know, everyone who wants to get away with spending, they know what's the, the you know, what's the 501c whatever status what if we funnel it into a pack or a whatever or my wife can donate it instead or something you know they figure it out um and it just ends up kind of hurting the little guy so we're coming close to our out time so just one little question as a libertarian how do you solve crony capitalism <laughs> one simple question <laughs> Right. So I, I mean, unsurprisingly, I tend to think uh, we need a smaller government because the drive to, cap to, to capture the government or to capture the regulators or to, to own the regulators themselves gets even more important if there's more regulating to be done. Obviously, we need 
you know, we need, I'm, I'm not like, I'm not an anarchist. We need right regulation for true, like, what do they call public goods issue, you know, environmental issues, that kind of thing. Uh, although even in some of those, right, there's room for property rights to actually protect environmental resources. If you give like local people more feeling like it's their stuff, you don't get a tragedy of the commons kind of situation. Um, I, I think in general, I, I think clear, transparent, simple rules are better than like complicated commissions doing open-ended investigations run by political figures. Um, with, with like with the tech companies, for instance, you know, I could see some, I could probably, uh, the, the, the line along which I think Section 230 could potentially uh, be updated would be some kind of privacy uh, consideration for keeping, uh, like I think, for, I think for instance, courts, maybe the Supreme Court has struck down like revenge porn laws, laws um, stopping that kind of thing. So you could change a law. To, I, social media tech has given us a much greater ability to, to violate people's privacy and then have that out there forever in just like a very harmful way. So I might like to see that might be an area where I, I, I think there could be, you could have legislation improve upon, I guess, what the natural state of what the market allows. Uh, but again, I'd be very careful that I would, didn't bring down the whole internet as I did it, <laughs> uh, which is not necessarily something you can ever trust regulators to do. Yeah, and that, in addition to the growing bipartisan fervor to limit undesired expression, could be could be really opening a Pandora box there. Right. So, final question, closing the circle from the beginning: What are you most worried about? going into November 3rd and the elections? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm most concerned about uh, about the pandemic that we're going to continue to kind of just be in a holding pattern of like restrictions and then things get a little bit better and then we lift them and then they get bad again. Um, I, what I'm, I'm hopeful that I think there's been pressure from the media. I mean, this, I think this is part of the anti kind of Trump side bias. There's been pressure to portray things as very bad and by the media and that Trump is responsible. Whereas if Trump is no longer president, I, I'm interested to see if there's less focus on how utterly horrible everything is. Will, will CNN's, you know, second by second uh, COVID death rate uh, stay on the screen? Uh, I'm not sure. So I, I'm very interested to see how the media covers the admittedly bad uh, situation, but if it's if it's as uh, 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 just constantly in your face as it has been for the last few months. Robbie, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining uh, us. If you're ever in New York, let me get you a beer. Absolutely. I hope <laughs> to be there again soon. In, po- in, in a non-socially distant era. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. This was um, This episode was kind of a breather compared to the previous one. Our next episode, if everything goes well, will be on November 4th. So, yeah, brace yourselves, if anything remains. Please sign up to uncertain.substack.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a nice rating and we'll see you next time. Stay sane.